Hey. Hello, hello. How's it going? Good. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, I'm happy to hear your voice again, as if I don't hear it every like three or four days. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we talk fairly frequently, but uh, yeah, it, it really um, it sucks. So, Karen, I'm not sure if uh, you knew what was going on here. Um, there was a possibility that uh, Pamela and I were going to uh, go observe the election in ah. uh, Colombia. Hi, Pamela. I'm Karen. Hello. Hi, Karen. Wait, wait, hang on. You two, you two haven't spoken or, or met before. No. no. I don't think so. Here I am on the assumption that you two know each other. Why did I think that? <laughs> no. I, so are you in Colombia now? I don't know. No, she's just in Toronto. Yeah. No, I'm in I'm in Toronto. My family's from Chile, but um I okay. I follow all things Latin America. Oh nice. Okay, cool. Well welcome. Thank you. So just for some background, um Pamela is a uh, an activist and labor organizer. Uh, long-time comrade. She's she's actually got her finger on the pulse for like a lot of uh, Latin American socialists um, in Canada, and she knows like a lot of the same people that you and I would know. A lot of the same people that people like uh, like Jay Watson, Drew Garvey would know. So when she started rattling off names, I'm like, okay, well we we gotta we gotta we gotta collaborate. This would be great to be able to work together. Yeah. No. Can you give us a give for the audience that uh, doesn't uh, that may not be familiar with you, Pamela? Can you give a little bit of background on yourself? Yeah, um, I've been a labor activist in Toronto for many years now, probably close to a decade. Um, I, I first got involved with my with my work union at the University of Toronto, QP3902. So I'm a former member there. Um, and I've been doing uh, Latin American solidarity work for a number of years. Um, my own interest in that just stems from my, my family's background, as I mentioned. Uh, my family's from Chile. They came to Canada as refugees in the 70s, um, fleeing the, the Pinochet dictatorship. So that's always just been, um, you know, a, a personal interest and uh, something very dear to me. So so that's that's the short story. I'm a researcher. Um, that's how I initially started talking to, to Q was I reached out to him with some research I'd been doing uh, that I thought might interest him. Um, and and yeah. Yeah, I mean that uh, pretty much uh, covers the long and short of it. So, she's also helping me with a uh, a lengthy video project that uh, uh, Kieran you might know about. It's about uh, a certain figure in Canadian politics and their sort of shady backgrounds. Um, but it's going to be a while until we're until we're completed on that. Um, but yeah, so there's uh, elections coming up in uh, on the 29th of May um, in Colombia, and I think um, with the amount of focus that's uh, that's that's uh, put towards com- countries like uh, Chile and Bolivia, uh, Brazil even. I think Colombia often gets, or, or and Venezuela, of course, but I think uh, Colombia often gets overlooked, even though in, in many senses, uh, Colombia is the U.S.'s foothold in both Latin America and the Caribbean. Would you be able to give a little bit of uh, background of relatedness there, Pamela? Yeah. So um, if you just think about Colombia geographically, um, traditionally, it was thought of as an Andean country, a South American Andean country, same with Venezuela, um, just historically and seen more within the context of South America. Um, but obviously, it's also a Caribbean country. And so geographically, um, it's, you know, it's looking south and north. It's looking to, you know, towards the Andean region. It's got, you know, ties with the Amazon, so looking to the east of South America. Um, it's just geopolitically in that sense, it's next to, to Panama. Um, it's, strategically, it's an important place. It's also been a place where um, the U.S. and Western allies have um, sort of, they've used it to, to combat um, Marxist movements in Latin America. Uh, and obviously not exclusively out of Colombia, but it's certainly strategically been an important place um, for that. And it's also obviously been the reason they do that is because it's been an important place of resistance uh, with with various uh, Marxist movements, popular movements, um, indigenous and Afro-Latino movements or whatnot. So it's an important place um, for both the left and the right. And um, right now, I guess the the significance of these elections, which are coming up next month, as Q said, on I think May 29th, um, is just yeah, 29th. 
yeah, is, is to see the direction in which the country is going to go is going to have a lot of implications for for um, for the rest of Latin America and also for for the U.S.'s larger geopolitical strategies. Um, and I don't know, Q, if you want to if we want to get right into that, how how you want to like there's, I think, a lot to unpack and uh, when it comes to, to the situation here. So. Sure. Um, so I guess like uh, some of the uh, stereotypes that people might come up with when they think of Latin American countries like, uh, you know, like, uh, I mean, when they think of Colombia, like oftentimes they think of the drug trade, but then they'll also like tr- uh, superimpose other tropes onto them, like, uh, you know, military dictatorship, um, a, uh, you know, like a, 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 a crushed or nearly non-existent political left uh, that uh, there's, uh, you know, like no... Uh, democratic governance and that's not like none of that is true um i think because of its history of of having uh been heavily or ha- having been a heavily narco dependent state um that it has attracted many of those tropes but uh, in colombia like you there are the idea of like military dictators is, is virtually unknown there is a uh, strong political left um there is a uh a, a strong populist movement uh, due to urbanization and industrialization. Uh, there's also steady economic growth um, in Medellin, Colombia. Uh, it's it's rapidly becoming like a, a Silicon Valley of Latin America. Um, Bogota is a, a fairly prosperous um, and metropolitan capital, um, and there's uh, you know strong relationships and trade ties with uh, Caribbean countries. And, you know, there's, I mean, there's, there's plenty of reading material. Um, there's also like, uh, although the, the, the newspapers and magazines um, coming out of the country are fairly like center right, fairly neoliberal. So the one that I read most often is uh, Semana magazine. And it, it is like a, a, a very neoliberal magazine. But to me, it's almost like reading like Times or, you know, like reading uh, like or Time or Newsweek or something like that, where even though you are going to get a fairly like uh center right um almost like a i don't know like a chicago economic school type of consensus out of it it it, you'll at least get a sense of what's happening in the country um i don't read any english language newspapers out of colombia i'm not sure if you can possibly suggest to me any but i do i do uh typically read uh semana and then obviously like compare and contrast um information that i'm getting from there with uh other spanish language sources but uh, yeah, there there is a, a fairly strong populist left, and that's partially uh, what's at stake in the upcoming election um, because uh, the uh, the current president of Colombia is not eligible for re-election. Uh, so you've got a um, I don't know that there's a, a movement towards um, prying Colombia away from NATO, or at least there's nothing about that that I've read so far. But in terms of like uh, development that the country's gone through in the last, uh, say, like twenty to twenty-five years, um, with regards to having um, both a a like a stronghold for communist movements and also having a strong um, uh, like a socially uh, democratic political movement, I mean, all of the all of the necessary components are there uh, for Colombia to essentially join what many people are are calling the resurgent um, pink tide. But I think because it's been so heavily uh, castigated um, as a uh, as a U.S. puppet, uh, the fact that you know there are Colombian guerrillas that um, go across the border into Venezuela uh, to uh, destabilize the political environment and try to form an overthrow of the uh, the Maduro government, um, I think people uh, typically put Colombia on the side as a uh, as, as being a U.S. stooge or a U.S. puppet. And I think that that heavily overlooks um, the fact that we, we have comrades down there, that there is there is a strong uh, political left movement that deserves support. Yeah, no, I completely agree with you. I think there's a lot of potential. And yes, there's always historically been a strong left. It's, it's precisely why there's been conflict for so long is because there has been that constant resistance that, you know, has refused to lay down Um you know, and, and it has to be, I think, continued to be cultivated and, and strengthened. Um, in terms of the elections, just to give a little bit of background on that. So, you know, as we mentioned, it's coming up on the 29th of May. Um, and Q already mentioned that 
Ivan Duque can't run again. Uh, his four-year term is up and the Colombian constitution doesn't allow um, a candidate to seek re-election immediately. Um, and so you have, I think, essentially three main candidates. There's a few more independents. And I'm just going to just talk a little bit about, um, you know, just give a little bit of background and mention who they are just so that folks can you know, get a sense of, of, you know, what, what this election is, is looking like. Um, so the, um, the front runner is actually the left wing candidate who is with the Pacto Historico, with the historic pact, uh, for Colombia. Um, and what's really great about this is that both him and, um, his name is, um, Gustavo Petro, uh, both him and his running mate, Francia Marquez, um, come out of the Colombian social movement. So Gustavo Petro in his youth was part of uh, Movimiento 19 de Abril, so M19, uh, the movement, the 19th of April, the, wow, I can't even speak, the April 19 movement. Um, and Francia Marquez comes from this uh, coalition called Soy Porque Somos. I am because we are. Um, so uh, she's been an activist since she was about 13 years old when she, you know, started st standing up against, uh, uh, there was the, they were building a, a dam in her, in her community. So for, I mean, she's 40 years old now since so she was 13, what, 27 years she's been an activist. In his youth, Gustavo, as I mentioned, was, uh, was, uh, a member of M19. He was also the mayor of Bogota for a number of years. Um, both of them are pursuing, have been pursuing similar politics, um, you know, so they want to end corruption. Um, they are both concerned about the environment, about human rights uh, for, for the, you know, for, for the left, but also for black and indigenous populations. Uh, <clears throat> I think they want to see development and, and, um, and, you know, prosperity in, in rural areas, but done in a way that is sustainable, that doesn't feed into the sort of neoliberal model of extractivism. Um, so they're running for, for, uh, they're running as a team. Um, as I said, Pacto Historico, uh, is, is the front runner. Um, in second place is the right wing party right now in the polls. Um, that one's called Equipo for, uh, por Colombia. So, uh, the team Colombia. Um, and the candidate there is Federico Gutierrez. Um, he has talked, uh, I think he was quite critical, I, or was that Duque? Um, I think he wants to implement the peace process, but he also has very strong ties to Uribismo, so to the former president Alvaro Uribe. Um, and then in third place right now in the polls is uh, Centro Esperanza. So, uh, center the hope center or whatnot and it's a centrist party i mean that's it's a play on words there with centro like it's that their hope is is in the center and the political center yeah yeah um and that uh the candidate there is sergio fajardo um there's also like i said some independent candidates including uh ingrid betancourt uh who many of you might know uh she was held hostage for six years by FARC. Um, she was, you know, she was one of the, one of the hostages, um, uh, back in, back in the day. Um, but I think, you know, really, um, the, 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 the front runners are those three candidates I mentioned. <clears throat> Hello? Oh, sorry. Sorry about oh, yeah. that. I thought I had unmuted. Can you, can you take us through some of the, um, the political differences, uh, between say like, uh, you know, not just uh, Petro and Gutierrez and Fajardo, but uh, like, who are the uh, who are the the political parties? What policies do they support, etc.? Uh, so, for example, um, the Pacto, Pacto Histórico por Colombia. Um, if you can give us like a, a bit of a background on them, uh, as well as the uh, Equipo por Colombia, um, some of the policies that they support, especially as regards to uh, you know, uh, domestic policy, uh, policy towards the United States, towards neighboring countries, et cetera. Yeah. I mean, Pacto Historico, I think is, 
you're going to find it's it's a broad umbrella movement. It's got parties going from the Communist Party to sort of progressive liberals. Um, so you're going to see, I think, a, a broad spectrum of, of ideas or whatnot. But essentially, I think a lot of their main uh, focus is on things like, um, you know, actually finding a way forward with the peace process. I think there's a big commitment to that. Um, there is a big focus on the environment. So um, peace process between peace process between whom? Oh, sorry, between the different factions. So right. the, historically, between you know what would be the the government, the military, and then you know with the paramilitary movement to the left. So essentially, trying to move for past the you know what has been the, the first the civil war, and then since 2016 the the peace process in Colombia. Essentially, I think. Everybody would agree that the peace process has, you know, was an absolute failure. Uh, the, you know, the, the agreement was reached, and soon after, um, we saw that environmental defenders, um, the left uh, paramilitary groups or the, the militant groups like FARC were being assassinated almost immediately. So it, you know, it, in no way was was there any real peace. Um, it, you can't even say that it, there was a peace that didn't last. Like it. It actually never happened um, pretty much right from the, the get go. Um, so I think there's a big commitment to to finding and implementing a peace process. Um, I think after decades, the Colombian people are tired of, of civil war, of conflict, of, of seeing that um, that their loved ones are, are dying in these conflicts. In fact, um, I don't know if, if you've seen, but just last month, just a few weeks ago on March 28th, um, in the town of um, Puerto Leguizamo, there was a massacre where there was supposed to be this military operation. Uh, they killed, I think, about 11, um, 11 people. And they said, oh, these were all terrorists. They were all, you know, part of these um, illegal terrorists, you know, paramilitary groups, they're FARC or whatnot. And in reality, it's indigenous land defenders. There was a 16-year-old child who was killed. Um, there was. This has been happening since the 2000s. Oh, <laughs> that uh, yeah, that uh, every time the military ends up, um, every time they uh, conduct military operations in the jungle, um, you know, a number of people get massacred. They come back and say they're Farco Gareas, and then it'll turn out that they're indigenous land defenders. This actually happened uh, during the Bush yeah. administration, where some people were taken hostage for a while, and then there was another military operation that ended up with people dying. Um, and it was it was the exact same thing that was blamed on the uh, the FARC rebels, but it uh, turned out to be indigenous land defenders. Always, this is constantly happening. I mean, I think Colombia is the country in the world with the highest uh, number of assassinations of land defenders. Um, I think like a third of land defender assassinations in the world, I think, are in you know the, the assassinations happen in Colombia. So again, and like I said, just as recently as a few weeks ago, this happened where there was a massacre. Um, and like you said, they frame it as, you know, we're going after FARC or we're going after the Elenos or, you know, whichever, whichever group, um, that, yeah. you know, is, is convenient in that moment. Um, I know that, um, I think one thing that I really wish more people were talking about is, um, you know, you said what distinguishes some of the parties and their politics. I would say NATO. Uh, Colombia is the first and only Latin American country to have a partnership with NATO. Um, so to have an alliance and they've been, you know, that the, the initial conversation started in 2013. Um, by 2017, they, there was this partnership, uh, just a few weeks ago, also in, in March. Biden, uh, made a statement saying that, um, Colombia would become a major ally even though they're not members. Um, and I'll come back to this because there's, I just, I, I'd like to talk a little bit about how, what that looks like or how it ends up playing out when, uh, when NATO does get involved or how they kind of frame this. Um, but, um, Petro has, uh, has spoken against, uh, NATO involvement. I think there's a tweet of his where he says, um, something along the lines of NATO stands for the, the, an alliance of the North Atlantic. He's like, we're in the South, uh, we're in Latin America and the Caribbean, and we're very much Latin Americans, right? So I think he's made it clear where his, what his position is on, on NATO. Um, 
I would imagine that the other parties would continue along the lines of the current government. I, you know, in terms of, of building up instead those alliances, they're very much invested in their alliance with, uh, with the United States and others. Um, and that looks, you know, different ways. It looks like this NATO relationship, but it also looks like, um, the Canadian led Lima group, for example, that was created essentially by Christia Freeland, uh, to target Venezuela. Um, right. And it, uh, you know, if you start looking at, at what the relationship with, um, with Western allies looks like, it's always rapidly anti-communist, anti-Marxist, um, trying to suppress social movements, trying to um, co-opt, um, you know, environmental initiatives and, and make them, you know, sanitize them to look more um, neoliberal, essentially. So I think that those are some of the, the main things. I think what, what's distinguishing the parties is essentially in terms of like the geopolitical is, is where the alliances are. Um, locally, I, I'd say, I mean, they always, you'll often see everybody campaigning on things like anti-corruption, um, right? I don't know any, any, you know, it's always the approach, but I think what you see is a difference in approach. So oftentimes you'll see the right-wing parties pursuing more anti-crime. Um, Pedro, when he was mayor of Bogota, very much pursued uh, the issue of crime and violence as a public safety issue. So I would say that distinguishes him as well. Um, he was pursuing things like more public transportation. So I think these are the areas where you're going to see the differences in terms of the parties. I have a question. Um, what would you say, what do you, I mean, what are the sort of strategic um, uh, sort of um, implications of Colombia being called essentially a NATO ally or being called a NATO ally? Um, and then what, uh, like, is this posturing towards Venezuela, Cuba, both? And what is the, pro what is the um, importance of it happening now at this point in history? Yeah, no, uh, that's, a, that's a great question, Karen. Um, let me just try and organize my thoughts because there's so much to say. Like, yeah, obviously the implication is... When you look at this approach of, you know, multilateralism that um, the United States and Canada have taken toward Latin America, it's very much um, aimed at combating any leftist movements in Latin America. So, yes, absolutely, there are implications for Venezuela, for, for Cuba, Nicaragua, right? I mean, those are the countries that are seen as aligned with Russia in this conflict, you know, in, in, in geopolitical terms. And therefore, Colombia also being a neighbor of Venezuela is seen as a counter to that. Um, oftentimes you see that, um, it, one, in terms of agitating because they, they, they're so close, because there's so many Venezuelans in Colombia, because, you know, you have Colombians in Venezuela or whatnot, that close relationship between the two countries historically. Of course, they're agitating and um, I think trying to get involved with, uh, how would you say, it? I'm going to pause that thought for a second. But in terms of, um, yeah, in terms of the implications, if if I think the right wing government of Gutierrez wins, we're going to see more of this sort of politics, this kind of geopolitical situation where they continue to work with the with uh with you know western allies uh us allies um against countries like um uh venezuela uh, cuba but i think they're also going to in many ways try to undermine even the the more moderate left governments that you might see for example like in chile um and i don't mean undermine in a way that's agitating i think by encouraging precisely what you have in chile with somebody like boric right who's very much uh a centrist and not the this great leftist hope that people had had hoped he would be um in terms of the larger context um i think sorry in terms of locally 
Um, I'll give one example of, of what this whole NATO um, alliance looks like. So if you Google um, online uh, the whole nato Colombia alliance, it's one thing that they've, you know, that, that will pop up that they were trying to promote and that, but in a very minimal way, which tells you how much they're actually invested in it, is they created um, an ex- a virtual exhibit. Um, let me just find this name here. Um, where is it? They created a virtual exhibit that looks that is about climate mitigation. Um, let me just find the name because I think it's it's worth actually having people look it up. Um, I don't know. Q, do you want to intervene for a moment while I just quickly look this up? Sure. I actually wanted to. Um, well, I, I don't want. I don't want to put you on another track while you're looking something else up also. Um, but I also did want to talk about like some of the, uh, or get into like indigenous land defense. Um, do you know much about the, um, about the Choco? Not enough, not enough that I would know. I wouldn't feel comfortable, but if I don't know, have, I know you've been reading up on this. So if there's things that you want to say about it, I'm curious to hear you too. Well, I mean, uh, the area is, um, like it, it, there tends to be a, a number of paramilitary operations that are carried out um, in the so the the, uh, the region is also like named uh, for the people um, and the sorry about that because of the uh, the density of the forest uh, because of the uh, the number of indigenous people that live there and because um, there are um, guerrilla organizations that have uh, retreated um, into the region as well. Uh, it tends to not be very safe for uh, for trespassers, but it also tends to be an excuse to stage um, military conflicts. So it's probably the area in Colombia that has suffered some of the most violent outcomes as a result of those uh, military conflicts. Uh, some anthropologists even uh, call acts of, of oppression and, and repression in the area. Um, they've, they've, there are some anthropologists that call it a genocide, or sorry, uh, an ethnocide. Um, it's, it's partially the responsibility of paramilitary groups, but it's, it is mostly the responsibility of the, uh, the Colombian government and the, uh, the Colombian military. Um, the, while the, the population of indigenous people in the area, um, when the Spanish arrived was somewhere in the, the range of 10 million people, uh, now the region, um, or rather, uh, now the the country has an indigenous population of more, no more than eight hundred thousand. And for people that live in like uh, rural areas and uh, live in forested areas, um, you know these uh, these conflicts are uh, deadly because there there is uh, environmental racism, there's environmental pollution, um, there's also like forced displacement, etc. Um, the uh, the area that I'm, I'm referring to here um, is about I think it's like like close to a third of all of Colombian territory. And uh, because of the, uh, the, uh, the attacks um, and, and because of the, uh, the, the paramilitary operations, um, and also uh, due to indigenous resistance, at the beginning of the, uh, the 20th century, there was an armed uprising. At the beginning of the 20th century, there was an armed uprising under um, Manuel Quintin Lame. Uh, and that was what uh, laid the foundation for... Um, ONIC, which in English is the uh, the National Indigenous Organization of Colombia, and they're actually not a uh, uh, they're not an armed organization. They're actually uh, into nonviolent civil resistance. So uh, one of the uh, one of the problems that uh, the Choco region has been experiencing for for decades now is that regardless of who is in power, like regardless of who foreigns government, but especially under uh, strongmen like uh, like Obrador. Uh, the the problem is that there haven't been um, concessions and there hasn't been like a nation to nation dialogue uh, with those indigenous peoples. So one of the I guess uh, one of the issues heading into this election is what are what is the relationship between the government of Colombia and the Choco going to look like? We- yeah, no, that to me is like you know this whole relationship with indigenous peoples is fascinating um, and also like incredibly important right because you're right like there have 
you know, it's it's a group that's suffered immensely under under you know the I mean historically with with colonization, but also currently or whatnot, and and with the whole civil war. Um, I think I mean to me, it's clear that that if there is going to be one group that prioritizes that, that has already been prioritizing that, it is going to be um, the historic pact, you know, the government of, of um, Petro. And I think one person who would be key in that is his running mate, um, Francia Marquez. That has been her focus, um, is Black and Indigenous populations. Uh, you know, she is a Black woman. She has lived through this in a way that many others haven't. Um, and her focus, too, um, she has said, is on rural communities where so many of the Indigenous people do find themselves. And the, the reality is, th this is exactly what, why I want to talk about this particular NATO project. Um, um, it's called the, um, geez, I just, <clears throat> it is called, why do I keep doing this? Um, let's see here. Sorry, in in uh, the 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 this exhibit that um, that um, has been created between NATO and the Colombian uh, Ministry of Defense, and uh, is called the Colombian Paramos and High Mountain Ecosystems. Um, so essentially, what you have is. It's being framed as a climate mitigation project in Colombia where they're saying, you know, what are we, what can the military accomplish in terms of civil society, you know, for this, for civil society in terms of its, you know, um, when it's doing good, you know, good, good things that aren't involved with like, um, violence or whatnot. And it's this, this, the whole project is like, oh, we're doing climate mitigation in the Paramos. Um, and the Paramos is essentially, they call them cloud forests. So they're high up in the mountains. It's like an eco zone or whatnot. And so they're, they're, this is how they're framing it. And a lot of it is framed around relationship with indigenous peoples or whatnot. But when you start looking into the actual, um, when you start looking at it strategically, well, what are the Paramos regions? These are regions that have traditionally been held by FARC. And what they're trying to do, if you look at English, you know, I looked it up and I was reading some things that, you know, some English literature on this. And sure enough, the focus of these articles and this environmental work and, you know, they talk about the indigenous populations. But half of the articles are also shitting on things like FARC or the left or whatnot and essentially trying to create these divisions between indigenous peoples um, and uh, and. Uh, and the left, no? So this is what, you know, that NATO interventionism could look like. You know, in reality, they are in strategic locations where the FARC, where uh, ELN have historically been, where they continue to be. And what they're trying to do is essentially say, oh, look, we're here to um, create, you know, to, to do good things, you know, climate mitigation. We're going to be working with the local population. What they really want to do is create hostility and animosity between indigenous folks and, and the, 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 you know, the militant groups. So I think that's something that we need to be looking out for. The way that this is framed, the way that progressive causes are used, um, against the left, um, because in reality, the relationship also talks about military training and that military training is probably going to be taking place in those like high mountain areas in the Paramos. And they're going to that military training is going to be applied by Colombia. You know, Colombia is not involved in conflicts with other people. It's involved in an ongoing civil conflict. That's where that military training is going to be put, you know, into effect in, in, in reality, right? All this training is going to be put into effect probably in regions like that with the Paramos. And yeah, they'll talk a little bit too about, oh, you know, in, in these areas where there's also these, there's routes of narco trafficking. Like they try to make it seem like they're taking on sort of progressive causes. But the reality is going to look very different and it's going to continue to look like massacres of indigenous peoples, land defenders, of left wing militants. So I think it is this this um, 
this particular election is critical. Um, and then in terms of international politics, like we said, you're going to have this ongoing issue that Latin America is going to continue to be weaponized against Russia, right? They're going to weaponize it by weaponizing countries like Cuba and Venezuela. Um, I think they're going to keep pushing countries like Chile to continue to take on these really bland, moderate statements. Like if you look at the whole thing with uh, Chile and the interviews that have, you know, with Boric, the, the new president, they've all been about, well, the, the first question they always ask him, what about human rights abuses in, in uh, Venezuela? What's your government's position going to be on that? Because, you, you know, you've aligned yourselves with the communists and your left wing. And, you know, historically, these have been the ties. So there's constantly uh, trying to, to undermine any sort of left organizing, left political movements in Latin America in order, in order to serve other strategic purposes. Can you um, do you have any knowledge of um, the, uh, the Afro-Colombian community in uh, Cerro Teta? No, no, I don't. Not not enough myself, but certainly. Um, no, the, yeah, the reason I ask is, as is, is, uh, I mean, now that we're on the other uh, subject, I mean, that was that was of interest to me um, since way back in the the nineteen nineties, and that was because um, I had a visit to my school uh, by. Um, an Afro-Colombian um, who spoke about uh, some of her experiences, uh, and that's that's the community that she came from. She was uh, she she was a refugee from Colombia, um, and if you're if you're familiar at all with the area, it was um, a region that was claimed um, by Afro-Colombians uh, as like a you know a self-sustaining and, and, and uh, self-determined community. Um, but it's it's also been the source of you know uh, military repression. Uh, it has been a source of civil resistance, etc. But uh, not very long ago, it was uh, I'm pretty sure it was like late 2020, um, where uh, Colombian police uh, went into uh, the region and again, you know, military operation. They were going there to uh, to root out terrorists and. Uh, there were warnings from uh, the uh, the regional ombudsman's office that there was going to be a military operation there, and the operation ended up with uh, seven uh, seven men killed. Sorry, seven seven people killed. It was uh, six um, adults and one child that were killed in the operation. As far as has been investigated, there were no. Uh, terrorists or paramilitaries or anybody that they actually caught or killed or anything of that nature. It was essentially just uh, a death squad operation. And that's, that's how, uh, that's how the, uh, the, the previous governments, uh, Obrador, Obrador's government um, were operating with uh, complete impunity. Uh, Duque, the very same thing. There hasn't been any meaningful dialogue um, between his government and either indigenous or Afro-Colombian communities. So I guess my question for you is, do you see any, I don't know, like any possible reconciliation or like healing between uh, the broader Colombian community and some of these Afro-Colombian communities that for literal decades have said that they have been underneath state repression? Um, I, sorry, Pamela, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I have to actually leave. I've had an urgent issue come up. So I'm so sorry. I will listen to the recording. But I gotta. I have to head out and make a quick phone call. No worries, Karen. Do what you gotta do. Yeah. No. Thank absolutely. You. Thank you, Pamela. Thanks, Q. See everybody. Thank you. Um, and also, I was gonna say uh, before you begin, uh, for anybody that's in the audience, if you have any questions about uh, the uh, the Colombian election, if you have questions about Latin American politics in general, um, or if you have any opinions on the upcoming election, I mean, feel free to join the caller queue. And I know that where it comes to issues of like foreign policy, where we may not be as familiar. It's not always the easiest thing to get up in front of a bunch of people and, and ask questions or have a conversation, but I highly encourage it because the only way that we're going to learn is to talk about these things. Uh, sorry, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, no, and uh, you know, I would repeat that because even if if we don't know, I think between all of us, we can we can have that conversation. If there's a question that Q or myself can't answer, one of you might be able to as well, right? Um, and I think Q's right about that about that learning together. So. Um, yeah, no, when it comes to the Colombian situation, I really do think it depends on who, who wins the elections. If, if it's, um, if it's 
Gutierrez, certainly I have no hopes for, 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 you know, improvements in, right. in Colombia. Um, I think the Centro Esperanza, maybe you, you could see some movement, but I think it'll just, you know, I think in many ways it'll probably be paralyzed or have to, you know, just by its nature of being centrist, will be constantly compromising. And when you get those kind of governments, you just don't get the priorities of, of the more marginalized groups. And unfortunately, um, I am optimistic and I don't want to, you know, pretend that any any government ever is perfect or that you're going to see like, you know, that it's that it's going to some sort of panacea where it's just like event. It's just going to change overnight. But I am hopeful um, with the with the if Petro wins again, the fact that um, his running mate is um, Francia Marquez, that she is an Afro-Colombian, that this is what she has been doing again since childhood, since she was 13 years old. This has been her cause. Um, I, I think that the involvement of Afro-Colombian groups in, you know, under this broad coalition. Um, and here I'm going to plug the work of my friend Raul Burbano at Common Frontiers. Uh, Common Frontiers is a, is a Canadian, um, NGO, uh, that focuses on Latin America, but has very strong ties in particular to Colombia. Uh, they're the group that are going as, um, as, you know, that's sending a delegation as, as elections observers. But one of the groups that they're going to be meeting with, um, that they're, that they're in talks with is, um, an Afro-Colombian collective in Buenaventura. Um, and in fact, I think my sense is that they're helping quite a bit in the organization of the delegation or that there's strong ties there. So the, the, um, the Petro coalition very much already has the involvement and meaningful involvement of Afro-Colombians, right? They are, or I really want to emphasize that is that Afro-Colombians are, are very well organized, right? That they are in many ways leading so many of these, especially on the environmental side, on the land defense, um, that, that, that they are, you know, leading the way there. So am I hopeful if, if Petro wins? Yes. Am I hopeful if the other candidates win? Um, that ranges between not so much to not at all. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my answer to that. I have another question, which is, uh, um, what, what would be the, if everything remains status quo, right? So, uh, let's say that it, it doesn't end up being a, um, victory for, um, you know, for the central left party, what, what would be the worst outcome of this or what would be the, the worst case scenario, um, in a political status quo in Colombia? Like what, what are the, what are the downsides to things remaining politically as they are? I think we're going to continue to see people massacred. Um, I, we're going to continue to see unchecked violence. Um, you know, Colombia right now has a migration crisis of people fleeing the country, trying to escape, um, trying to escape the violence. Uh, I think you're going to see more land defenders, more indigenous peoples, more, more people in the black uh, community continue to be killed. You're going to continue to see poverty. You're going to continue to see um, Colombia helping the U.S. and Canada and, you know, these other Western allies. They're, they're going to continue to help just to entrench neoliberalism, which is already quite entrenched. But, you know, it's, it's, it, it just becomes that much harder to fight against it. They're going to continue to, you know, push shitty politics in the entire region too. It's not limited to, um, to Colombia. You know, as I mentioned, I, I really wish people, you know, it's, it's become a failed project, but I really wish people would have talked more at the time about the Lima group that was, um, formed by Christia Freeland to, to essentially just paralyze, um, Venezuela and, and, push these color revolutions within the country. I was, so, I was just going to get there. What can you tell us about uh, the, the, uh, the Lima group and uh, the OAS, especially with regards to um, what effect the OAS can have on the election outcome? Oh my God. The, the OAS, I, I feel less, 
less prepared to speak about that. But in terms of the, I mean, what you often get is the, the OAS just kind of talking about, you know, criticizing the electoral processes if they don't go their way or, 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 you know, being for if, if it does go their way or whatnot. I don't know. I haven't heard the kind of rumblings that, for example, in the lead up to the, the Venezuelan elections, was it in 2019? They were all, or 2018, they were already, you know, like weeks in advance, they were already talking about the legitimacy of the elections or whatnot. I haven't heard that same sort of thing here. So I'm a little less worried. I imagine that there's going to be a a huge turnout of uh, elections observers too. Um, Whereas, you know, one way that they could kind of... um, continue to shit on Venezuela was by by boycotting the elections too, right? And saying, mm-hmm. oh no, in advance the conditions aren't there for a democratic election. And so even before the election happens, it, they're not legitimate. So I'm, I'm less worried about that particular outcome. But in terms of what the, the, the Lima group, you know, what what I can say about that is Fortunately, a number of countries have have left it since, you know, with with their changes of government. And it's essentially kind of died out, um, which to me is, is a great joy for me. One, because a joy to see that this effort to to continue to just really fuck over the, the Venezuelan people, because they're the ones who suffer, um, has, you know, pretty much failed or, or, you know, collapsed and they've just kind of mm. quietly stopped talking about the Lima group. But also for me, it's a great pleasure to see anything led by Christia Freeland go to shit, right? <laughs> because I think he's, he's an awful, awful, awful human being. Uh, 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 I was going to say also, like, uh, one of the... Um, uh, uh, so I, I did mention previously that I, I read La Semana, and like I said, it's like, I mean, to me, reading La Semana is like, it's the same to me as reading like the Financial Times, right? Like you can you can generally see what capitalists say to each other when they have no shame. Yeah. Um, so it's not only been a source of, uh, I, I would say like, a, I, I shouldn't say disinformation to outsiders because it's a Spanish language um, magazine. So it's, it's, it, it's generally... Uh, for domestic population, but they have been able to affect um, policy outcomes and political outcomes, not only in uh, Colombia, um, but they also tried a little something, something in Ecuador. Like, I don't know if you saw that uh, they were talking about um, illicit funding that was uh, allegedly uh, funneled to ELN. Oh, yeah. In September. Yeah. In September of 2020. Right. Yeah. So, so they published an article that said that uh, uh, the ELN, donated $80,000 to Andres Arauz's, Arauz's uh, presidential campaign. Um, this was obviously like to, you know, to smear him and to, uh, uh, to help guarantee um, re-election for, uh, um, for, for Duque. And uh, yeah, sorry, for, um, uh, sorry, uh, for Andres Arauz, and that it was uh, facilitated by uh, Rafael Correa. And uh, the, yeah, this, so the, the idea here was that um, they were going to like secure an electoral outcome that was favorable to uh, the, uh, the Duque government and favorable to um, Uribe's politics uh, in Colombia, but also favorable to the desired OAS outcomes. And that, yeah, that, that, uh, that expose ended up um, backfiring, and it's part of the reason why um, the Ecuador, uh, Ecuadorian elections have uh, swung in the opposite direction. Uh, that uh, political fortunes have swung in the opposite direction, and, and that it's now poised uh, to become another uh, left-wing state. It also um, angered uh, several neighboring countries. So it's it's not uh, it's not just that uh, Colombia has been a U.S. ally in the region. It's also infuriated a number of Latin American countries as a, a source of disruption. Um, and sort of like a, a signal boosting for U.S. politics. Absolutely. Like, that doesn't surprise me at all. Like, this is how, how the U.S., Canada, like, all these interventionist countries operate in Latin America. And Latin Americans are just so used to, like, I guess, you know, in Latin America and folks who followed Latin American politics, like, none of this is surprising. This is what we expect. This is what our people have, you know, had to live with forever, <laughs> um, is this constant kind of, 
interventionism, um, the press working against, you know, local governments. You see this all over Latin America. Um, so it's, I'm not at all surprised. One thing I would say that, you know, that a lot of these, um, attempts at intervention do have in common, going back to, to what I said about NATO and this, uh, climate mitigation project. It's not an accident that they've chosen climate mitigation because they want to win over land defenders. And this is exactly, you know, you mentioned Ecuador. They did the same thing. They tried to pit the left. They tried to pit Correa and indigenous groups against one another. They've been trying to do the same in Bolivia where they keep trying to say, oh, no, but Evo doesn't care about, you know, he, he actually doesn't care about the indigenous, about indigenous people. And, you know, there's extractivism. Well, it's not like extractivism is going to end under these governments. It's going to intensify. What they don't like is that these countries control their own extractivism, right? And I'm, I'm not trying to be an apologist for that extractivism. Like, we really are facing climate catastrophe, and Latin America is already feeling the impacts of that. But at the same time, what they want is to paralyze any sort of development or modernization under these governments because it's not going to be done in the model that is convenient to them. It's not going to be done under a neoliberal model, right? So... Mm. Um, and it just gives them more autonomy, more sovereignty over their own uh, territories or whatnot. But that is one of the strategies. It is to pit indigenous peoples against left movements, even though oftentimes, as we saw with Evo Morales, it is an indigenous led movement. You know, mm-hmm. he himself is indigenous. So I think that's something that I think needs to be explored more is, is how that's happening. Um yeah, I went off on a bit of a tangent there. No, no, it's okay. But it reminded me of that. The examples that you gave, mm-hmm. you you have this where these are the groups that are trying to pit against each other. Well, they've also tried to uh, interfere in U.S. politics. So back uh, during the 2020 election, um, you know, there, there were, I mean, uh, Alvaro Uribe was uh, president in Florida. He was, uh, he was campaigning in South Florida um, for Marco Rubio. Um, uh, yeah, um, Maria Elvira Salazar, Uribe endorsed her, uh, her, her congressional campaign. Um, people like, uh, Juan David Velez, uh, Maria Fernanda Cabral, uh, Cabral, uh, they campaigned for Trump in South Florida again. Um, they also advised, um, Mercedes Schlapp, Mercedes Schlapp from the, uh, the, the Trump campaign. And one of their uh, tactics was to craft um, anti-communist and anti-socialist messages in South Florida, basically saying that uh, you know that Joe Biden supports Castro Chavismo, which is like the idea that, <laughs> Joe, that Joe Biden supports either Castro or Chavez was, uh, yeah, it, it was kind of wild. But like there, there was uh, you know plenty of interference um, during the uh, the 2020 election, uh, and uh, Uribe also supported Trump in the 2016 election. So I mean, on top on top of the fact that they have been uh, meddling in their neighboring countries' affairs, um, they've also been, you know, whipping up anti-socialist hysteria in uh, select states in the U.S. on behalf of Trump and, uh, you know, Trump-like politicians. Always, and you know, I, I would love to see. I always think, like, if I do do a podcast ever, if I do, you know, like, I just want to see an episode where somebody just talks about Miami, and I, you know, for for people <sighs> who know, and it's usually associated with with the Cubans. Please whatnot, don't invite you know? me on because my worst experiences in life were all in South Florida. Oh my God. Oh. I, I don't, I've never been. Miami is like, oh, you haven't been? No. And I'm, it's Good one Lord. of those things where I'm like in my gut, whenever I hear Miami or, you know, I wish we, I just, there needs to be a conversation about Miami and the Latin American imagination, because for some people <laughs> it's like a Mecca where it's just like, Oh, Miami, the best thing ever. But for many of us, it's just like, <laughs> it's, <laughs> it is <laughs> absolutely Miami is like, Oh my God. Miami is like, um, like the decadent Mughal empire. It's like, it is, I don't know. It's like it's a place of sin and debauchery. It's a place of excess. It's also a place of like, like just absolute abject, just wretched inequality. It is, and it's just so like the place is so bizarre because like it's on the one hand made up of 
immigrants from all over, um, especially you know immigrants from uh, countries like uh, Haiti, Jamaica, um, Barbados, etc. But you know you, you get like plenty of uh, Haitian refugees. Um, they they used to come to uh, they used to uh, to come ashore in Florida. Um, back until the U.S. started heavily enforcing the wet foot, dry foot rule um, under the during the like the late Clinton years and the early Bush years. So the wet foot, dry foot rule for uh, for Cubans was that like if you could actually it was almost like a game of tag or like Red Rover. So like if you could actually get past uh, the Coast Guard and make it to land, like make it to dry land, then you're good. Like you can stay in the United States and file for asylum. But uh, if they got caught out in the open ocean, well, they were going to turn you back. Um, for Haitians, there was no such rule. I mean, if you made it to dry land in the U.S., like you risked your life, you probably came over in like an inflatable dinghy or something like that. You you paid a lot of money to people to smuggle you, um, you know, smuggle you the uh, the ninety hundred odd miles um, in the open ocean to the United States. But once you're there, if you get caught, they'll just send your ass right back. So uh, Haitians are, uh, I don't know, like. The Haitian population in Florida is heavily discriminated against, but the wild part is the the number of Cubans who, I mean, back home, you know, they're around Afro-Cubans, like, and, you know, racism is highly discouraged in Cuba, not to say that it doesn't exist, but, like, people are encouraged to see each other as, like, you know, colleagues, comrades, whatever you want to call it, um, whereas in Florida, like, the kind of latent racism that existed with a lot of people, especially those whose, like, families were landowners previously, they are some of the most virulently racist people that you'll ever meet. And that's that dynamic is all encapsulated in South Florida. I believe it. You know, I just when I think about what Miami means and Florida, you know, means to right wing, not just like I said, historically, there's this association of, of with Cuba. Right. And the, the gusanos uh, in, in Miami or whatnot. But when I think it's actually extends to Latin America. Like if you, you know, if, if you're talking to Chileans for, for the Chilean, right. Oh, we're going on holidays to Miami, Miami, Miami. Right. It's, it's like, they love it. And it, it has, it plays that role in a broader Latin American imagination. And of course they're going to bring those dynamics, right? Those are the right wing Latin American countries or the people who are mad about, um, Marxism and or socialism in, in Latin America, they are always the most racist ones, you know. They're always the ones who are like, we're Europeans in Latin America. And so, of course, they bring those <laughs> dynamics. And if you're, if you're Dominican and you make it to Florida and you're black, you'll still talk about you're not black. No, no, oh. no, no, papi. <laughs> I'm not black. I'm Dominica. You know what? No, no, no. Sorry. I've been having this conversation with my, well, I've had it with a number of friends, but a good friend of mine is Dominican. And we talked about how this, it's really fucked. Like you don't, you see it in a way, Dominicans have a different, like they just deny their blackness at all costs. It's bizarre. It's like, I, I'm looking like, no, you're, you're black. And they're like, no, 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 no. I'm no, a no. mix. I'm a bit of everything. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a bit of everything. It's just like, no. You want to you want to know something you want to know something wild? You want to know something wild? You know who's partially responsible for that? Like you know who helped crush the socialist movement, like a resurgent socialist movement in uh 1960s and 1970s Dominican Republic? No, I um, don't know enough that, about the that, Dominican. That, that helped reify those race uh those like bizarre and warped fucking self-hating race relations. Bayard Rustin, uh, noted civil rights hero Bayard Rustin was actually uh the, actually went to the Dominican Republic and supported an anti-communist movement um, and was, was uh, uh, funded by the CIA to do so. Oh uh, so I know. I know. <laughs> so when people, when people say that he was drummed out of the civil rights movement because he was gay, I'm like, yeah, no. I mean, that's, that's what, whenever I hear that one repeated, I feel like J. Edgar Hoover is just like smiling up from hell. No, he was drummed out of the civil rights movement <laughs> because he was a fucking spook. Yeah. No, it's terrible. You know, I, I will say, that at least in a pop culture way, I'm seeing a trend away from that among Dominicans. Um, I, I was having this conversation with my friend. In fact, I have a friend who is the opposite. I think she's scared to call herself um, Afro-Latina or Black because she feels like an imposter doing that. 
because she is lighter skinned, because here she wouldn't necessarily be red. Like here, you some people might be like white passive. But to me, in a Latin American context, I see her and I'm like, you're Afro-Latina. Do you know what I mean? And so I think for there's a combination. And I think she's just now that she's left the Dominican and she's here is surprisingly, I'm seeing her become more comfortable with that and not feeling like a fake by calling herself Afro-Latina. Yeah. But it's taken her a while to get there. Um, and I think the dynamics in Latin America are complicated. Um, a lot of it is racism. A lot of it, I think, is the fact that so many of our families look like a mishmash of everything um, that you don't necessarily sometimes know what to call yourself. Like, but no, certainly in the Dominican, I know that it, there is that anti-black racism and that sort of self-hatred. Um, yeah. But I'm optimistic in the sense that I think people are starting to, you know, embrace their blackness there. Um, but it seems like a very recent sort of nascent movement. Well, I guess like in relation to what we just talked about with Colombia, like in some ways I can't fully blame them because when you fully claim your your black ethnicity and it's not just in colombia like you know it, there's uh there's there's um intense racism in, in brazil as well uh you know the uh, the the garifunas in honduras are also yep. like constantly being displaced their villages are you know raised and and by um, Canadian tourism by the way by the porn yeah. king yeah 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 so i mean it's a combination of like tourism and uh, development as well um i went and visited a garifuna village uh, the last time that I was in Honduras, I went to uh, Rotan, and yeah, just like uh, seeing what they—I mean, it's—it's it's kind of like a—it's—it's it's tough because it's a—I uh, don't know how to put it. Like, uh, there's at once a dependence on tourism and at the same time, like exploitation by tourism. So, like, without the tourism industry, they wouldn't get any support from government whatsoever. So they are fully dependent on it. But at the same time, like the fact that they are getting any kind of support from tourism encourages. Uh, the Honduran government not to provide them any support. So in some ways I can sort of understand how it is that uh, Dominicans keep their heads down and try to assimilate into the broader body politic, even if it means abandoning their blackness, because in other areas of Latin America, um, like I said, where it comes to, uh, to Colombia, I mean, there's just like outright massacres as we've discussed um, in Honduras, you know, there's uh there's, uh, there's forced displacement. Um, and in places like Argentina, you hardly even find a black population because they, <laughs> They were, they were forcibly moved out of the country. So it's, yeah, yeah no, it's South tough. America is next level, right? Um, like I said, my family's from Chile. Um, when you, I, I mean, Chile also has, um, has been isolated in many ways from other parts of Latin America, just geographically by the Andes mountain, mountains. Um, but yes, the, uh, Chileans and Argentines tend to see themselves as like, very much European and it's a really weird fucked up thing. Um, even, you know, even people who look like me, uh, where, you know, like my, my cousin's nickname for me in Chile, when I go to visit, he's like India. That's my, you know, my nickname because I just physically, I look very indigenous. Um, oh, brother. Okay. And, uh, no, but what I mean is like Chileans Argentinians historically have really rejected that side of themselves. Again, I don't want to speak for Argentina. I don't know enough about what that's looking like there. In Chile, that's changing now. And that makes me hopeful. Like people are now very yeah. much becoming very proud of, of their Mapuche background or, you know, further north, like of their, you know, um, the, the other indigenous groups, which are, are much smaller, like the Diaguitas or whatnot. Um, but there's, there's a change happening and Chile is starting to, um, you know, change in terms of there's been a large Haitian community, um, that has grown in Chile. Um, because sadly, Chile was, um, involved with the UN mission, the MINUSTA, uh, like the mission yeah, in Minust Haiti. MINUSTA, the mission in Haiti after the earthquake, yeah. Yeah, so they, Chile was very much a part of that and, and really just of, of horrible human rights abuses in Haiti. Yeah. Um, and, but what, what you are seeing is be, because they were one of the countries, um, that was there on the mission, 
Um, they agreed to to um, accept and welcome. Well, I, I don't welcome is, is is really giving too much credit to the Chileans. They weren't welcoming initially uh, of Haitians, um, but you do see a large Haitian community. Um, so now it's it's much more common to see black people in Chile in a way that you didn't in the past. Um, and I think that's a good thing for Chile. But, you know, I also think like I hate to see the racism that has come with that and, and has, you know, that that the Haitian community has had to live through and navigate. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. Well, but, you know. Hopefully, I mean, hopefully in uh, Colombia, uh, things can change. Um, and since we're not, since it looks like we're not going to get any uh, any listeners hopping up to the caller queue to ask questions or offer feedback or anything else because y'all y'all scared. They're scared <laughs> of me is what it is. <laughs> I mean, we can go ahead and wrap, but um, I really hope that you will uh, come back and join us for future episodes, especially as it pertains to uh, to Latin America. I mean, you and I will definitely be going down some conspiracy rabbit holes where it comes to Ukraine and Canada. Um, <laughs> there are no conspiracies. Do, do not do not feed do not feed that into that into no, that. No, <laughs> no, no. We have to. No, we have to do it. L- listen, I, I am I'm like Charlie Day in front of like the yar- the yarn and pitcher chart. Okay, I'm I'm the Charlie Day meme. Uh, where it comes to Ukraine, I'm like. Matthew McConaughey smoking his cigarette in the biker bar as he's trying to track down the Yellow King. All right, like that's yep. that's me. So, <laughs> uh, so yeah, I definitely hope that you will um, come back and join us on future episodes as it pertains to events happening in Latin America. Absolutely. Uh, but you also have to come back and join us sometime uh, as we like go down the conspiracy rabbit hole. Oh, of course. But remember, they're not conspiracies. <laughs> no, it's not a conspiracy. It's exactly true. Yeah, uh, this is not a conspiracy theory. They're, they're facts. Yeah. And they're documented facts. That, that's the point. Well, it's like uh, Michael Parenti said, like, is it a theory if there's actual people in a room plotting a conspiracy? <laughs> no, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for uh, for joining us, Pamela. And thank I, you. I hope, I definitely hope uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah. No, absolutely. Take All right. Care. Have a good one. Bye, Bye. all.